Good morning, everybody. Good morning. You guys are so good at that with a countdown. It was it's awesome. Um, welcome to Adult Bible Study at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Rogers, Arkansas. I'm Pastor Longman. Um, delighted to have all of you here. And just fair warning, we do record this, and it's published on a podcast uh, for other people who are unable to be here with us. So don't say anything you don't want going out, you know, to the world. <laughs> As usual, let's start with any questions that you may have about anything. Nobody has questions about anything. Nothing. A um, couple things to let you know about. Um, I will be out of town this week coming up. Uh, I'll be in St. Louis for my um, studies at Concordia Seminary. Um, we have My doctoral program is almost entirely online through Zoom. But once a year, there's a week of intensives on campus. And so I've got to be up there for that this week, which is good because it actually gets me access to the library and stuff like that for research. So that's good. Um, but if you have need of pastoral care, um, Pastor Bernthal is probably the first place to go. And Pastor Spencer, I'll throw you under the bus, too. <laughs> um, and of course, I'll, I'll be available by phone. Um, what else was I going to say? Thank you to everybody who came and helped. Bless you. Everybody who came and helped with undecorating the church. That was wonderful. A lot of people here, so it went really fast. And um, we learned that Ted Ranker's wife makes exceptionally great chocolate chip cookies. So that made it go fast. <laughs> you missed out on the cookies. They were really good. Um, I think that's it. There's a bunch of other stuff in the news and notes, and y'all can read that and, and respond to it. Um, but any questions about anything else? I, oh, I do want to give you an update on the call process. Is that what you're going to ask? So, um, as you know, our, we extended a call to Pastor Eric Clausen um, from California. He returned our call, um, and I praise God that he's got clarity, that he's supposed to be where he is, and that he's got work to do. Um, but that means that, you know, what do we do now? There's a couple of paths that the call committee is looking at. Um, one of them is we have some additional names. We have additional candidates that have been given to us. Uh, we just got paperwork for them this week, so the call team is going to get together. We're going to look at those new candidates and see if there's anything there that we need to be putting in front of the congregation. Um, so that process is happening. But at the same time, we're having discussions about whether we maybe pursue a candidate from the seminary, um, a, a concluding student from the seminary. Now, there are, I think... As I understand it, there are about 70 concluding students between our two seminaries. Um, and there invariably will be more requests for candidates than there are candidates available. So that's not a sure thing, but it's a possibility. Um, I have talked to Dr. Pavla, who is our, our district president, and I know that he will go to bat for us to try and get a candidate. He knows what we, you know, what our process has been. Um, and the, the, challenge with it is that the timing for that is to basically say, yeah, we want a candidate from the seminary, is like right now. Um, so the deadline that the district had for us notifying them was the 15th or 16th, I guess, tomorrow. Um, and I have had those conversations with Dr. Pavlo, so he knows that, that that's kind of something we're looking at. Um, and the latest I had from him, I think, gives us a little bit of, of wiggle room time-wise so that we can look at these candidates from the field first and decide if there's one of them that we want to call, or if not, then we want to maybe look at going that route. We're not going to do that without talking to the congregation, obviously. that's it, The call comes from the congregation. 
And so the call team helps to, you know, do a lot of the grunt work to get it done. But the call is not from the call team. It is from the congregation. And so we won't take that step without talking to y'all. But those are the things that we're wrestling with right now. One of the candidates that had been on our list earlier that we wanted to take another look at, we talked to him this week, and it turns out he's taking another call, so he's kind of off the table. Um, but, you know, there's some interesting stuff going on. I've said before, you've probably heard me say it, that the, the call process and the way it works in, in seeking out a candidate and extending a call is spectacularly complicated. And there are a lot of moving parts and a lot of people with their fingers in that process. And, and that's a good thing because it means that the Holy Spirit has ample opportunity to step in and do what he's got to do. And I'll give you an example of that. Um, one of the candidates that came to us on an earlier list um, turns out that he has a name that is very common. <laughs> Um, in fact, he is not the only one with that name within the LCMS. There are actually three of them. And the paperwork that we got was one that we looked at and went, well, he's kind of interesting, but why is he on this list? And his paperwork had two different email addresses on it. Well, what we discovered was that the handwritten email address was actually for one of the other people with the same name. And so we, we, it's like, okay, which one of those two was supposed to be on our list? Because the one who we didn't get paperwork for actually kind of looks interesting. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that's one of those, you know, we got to run that down and find out what's going on. But it's like, wow, what is the Holy Spirit doing in poking candidates in front of us in ways that we might never have run across them? So... There's a lot going on. The call team has, you know, work that they're doing. Um, I will just encourage you in two ways. One is I know everybody's dealing with call process fatigue. I get it. I am too. Um, but I also know that God's in charge of this process and that he's going to bring us to the man that he needs us to have. And so I trust in that and I find peace in that. And my request for you is also to find peace in that and then to be in prayer. Um, to be in prayer that, that the call team has clarity, that they have wisdom about the work that they're doing, that God works through the congregation to call the person that he has in mind for us, and that he will bring He will bring us help in his time. Okay. Any other questions? Did that answer your question? That was what you wanted. Okay. Anything else? Anybody else have questions about anything? Okay. Um, what is today? January 15th. Uh, our devotion for today is from 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Now, dear children, live in Christ. And then when he appears, we will have confidence. And when he comes, we won't turn from him in shame. Um, the title of this is Living in Christ. What should you do when the thought of death frightens you and your conscience bothers you? Live in Christ. You must believe that you can accomplish nothing by your own works, but the only way is through Christ's righteousness. In John 6, 29, it says that the word of God, the work of God is believing in the one that he has sent. So when Nathan corrected David and David confessed his sin, this is after uh, Bathsheba, Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. David simply lived in grace. He didn't think about trying to satisfy God with his works. When Nathan said, the Lord has taken away your sin, he was proclaiming the message of grace, and David believed it. After Adam sinned, 
He could do nothing that would bring him into a state of grace. But God said that one of his descendants would crush the serpent's head. It was by this promise that he was made alive. Because he believed in this word, he was saved and justified without any works. Our nature struggles fiercely against being saved without our works. It tries to deceive us with a grand illusion of our own righteousness. So we may find ourselves attracted to a life that merely appears to be righteous. Or because we know we aren't righteous, we may be frightened by death or sin. So we must learn that we should have nothing to do with any other way of becoming righteous except through Jesus Christ alone. That's a pretty good reminder. All right. You know, we came last week and said, hey, we're going to do uh, this study of the Book of Concord. And we spent a lot of time talking about history last week, kind of, you know, what are these documents? Where they come from? Why are they all here? Uh, but one of the things that, you know, I told you I didn't really quite know how I was going to attack. Myron, I think it was you who said, how are you going to do that? Because <laughs> the book is really big. And I said, I don't know, right? <laughs> we're going to see how it plays out. Well, one of the things that popped up last week as we were talking was a Lutheran Hour ministry study called A Man Called Martin. And given how um, our discussion about history went last week um, and how I think that really kind of helped put things in context for us, I thought it would be a good idea for us before we dive into the contents of the Book of Concord to actually look at this Martin Luther guy and who he was and kind of what the events were that sort of all miraculously lined up to lead to the Reformation and to everything that happened after that. So um, I, I think, John, you get credit for pointing out that this thing exists. Um, I did go out to Lutheran Hour Ministries and download it. We're going to do, there's five sessions in it. Um, so we'll run through them. I think the video is about 13 and a half minutes on this first one. And we've got a bunch of questions. So we're going to take the next few weeks and just sort of dig into Martin Luther himself. Um, and then from there, we'll get into the Book of Concord a little deeper. Sound good to everybody? Go ahead. All right, cool. So um, this is A Man Named Martin, Session 1. And well, thank you very much, Robert. Here we go. Pray that the sound works. Could somebody close the blinds? Yeah. Thank you. Anyway, if we got to listen to the sound only on my computer, we Oh, she is a popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody want to volunteer for that next week? <laughs> <laughs> Will we have another film next week? <laughs> Send it over there. Oh. There he is. There he is. Yeah, that's not good. Pray for sound. Well, I think it's just going to be on the laptop. Can you all hear that okay? In nearly 500 years ago, an unknown monk from a backwater town in Germany, he set in motion a movement that would literally transform Western civilization. His name was Martin Luther. You know, I love what he said. He said, I never thought such a storm would rise out of Rome over a simple scrap of paper, but it did. Because he set free the gospel of Jesus Christ, a gospel that had been held captive for nearly 1,200 years by a church and by a book.
500 years ago, the people of Europe were under the domination of a, a very powerful religious empire, the Roman Catholic Church of the 16th century, an empire that controlled every aspect of a person's life. Uh, it could raise you to glory or condemn you as a heretic and burn you alive. So the church at that time had evolved or grown into this institution which was quite intimidating for the average person. The entire mass was done in Latin and the people didn't really know what was going on. They had memorized parts of it without really understanding what the parts meant. They just knew this was big, important, special stuff. But actually understanding what was being said, not really. Books were still rare. You could have an entire church that might not have an actual Bible in it. You would have maybe outtakes or little parts of it, but a full Bible was, was not common. Death is something people encounter all the time. To get through infancy was a significant accomplishment. People spend a lot more time thinking about what's next, and it was not a happy thought for most people. Martin Luther was the son of Hans and Margareta Luther. He was born November 10th, 1483. He was baptized the very next day. The children were baptized as soon as possible after birth because you just didn't know if a child was going to live. Infant mortality rates were huge in those days. And he ends up being named Martin Luther because he's baptized on St. Martin's Day. Uh, Hans had been a minor. Uh, he became an entrepreneur when Luther was very young. So Hans had dreams of not only moving from the agricultural peasantry into the mining industry, he had dreams of moving his son into the bureaucracy, where there was more money, more security, more power. And so he had a, a vision for the Luther family that, that was on the move, upward and onward. And there was no such thing as social security in those days. Your social security policy or your insurance policy for your old age, as it were, was your children, specifically your sons. And so Hans had big ambitions for his second son, Martin. He had designs on making him into a lawyer. The Luther family moved from Eisleben to Mansfeld, and Martin Luther went to elementary school here and primarily was a Latin school. And later, Luther would record the fact that in one morning he was caned or disciplined somehow 15 times for not having prepared his Latin lesson correctly. You know, people sometimes have these rather um, nostalgic, you know, views of, oh, wouldn't it have been great to live in the 16th century? But, you know, life was hard then. Even the attitudes of society were, were very difficult and, and, and rather harsh. Everything in those days was pretty strict in terms of the upbringing of young people. The church was strict, his parents were very strict. As a matter of fact, Luther later said that his concept of God the Father was somewhat influenced by the fact that his own father was very strict and he wasn't sure how much he loved his father at that point after getting disciplined. For small offenses in the civil realm, there would be rather harsh punishments. And this is part of what Luther grew up with. He, he recollects as he got older, you know, being punished by his parents sometimes for stealing a nut. And he said the blood 
flowed from the punishment he got. And the same thing he would experience in the schools. Just it was it was a harsh sort of world. The image they had of Christ was the image from the from the apocalypse of St. John. Christ in glory, Christ in judgment, and coming from his mouth would be the lily on the one hand and the sword on the other hand. And the lily of God's mercy and God's forgiveness, but the sword of wrath and judgment. So the burning question was, how do I avoid the sword and get the lily? Well, the church had the answer for this. And the answer, interestingly enough, came down to something you could put in the form of a slogan, which was actually preached from pulpits. Do what is in you. Do what is in you and God will not refuse you grace. At least do the best you can. So God gives his grace and I use that grace and I accomplish what God wants me to do. But what happens if I mess up? Well, there's an answer for that too. I go to church and at church I would meet the priest one-on-one -on -one and I would confess to him. And that would open the rite of penance, which would be I confess and then he gives me some kind of satisfaction to perform. Something that needs to be done to show that I have a truly penitent heart. It might be a Hail Mary, it might be a more rigorous kind of action, or it might be a suggestion that I could give a donation to a certain cause. And if I would go and do penance, then I could be assured I was forgiven for that particular sin. So it was very, very carefully worked out system. This amount of sin, this amount of penance, everything's right again, you're back on track, and away you go. Now, what if I don't do enough penance? What if I don't quite cover all the sin? The answer is some time in purgatory. And so you die, you're not quite good enough for God yet, but you're on the right track. We're not gonna send you to hell, that wouldn't be right. But you can go to purgatory, and in purgatory, we'll get you cleaned up, or God will get you cleaned up. So purgatory is not pleasant. You're, you're suffering in purgatory. You're sweating off your sins. And so I finished paying for all of my sinful behavior, and when I finally have paid every last bit in purgatory, then, then I'm ready now for the next step, and now I can walk into God's presence. But it was a very careful system. And all the way along, it's God's grace that's making this happen, and it's you that's doing it. You're the one earning the forgiveness. You're the one paying the price. You're the one accomplishing it. So the, the onus is on you to make sure it gets done. Now, this was the religion that Luther grew up with, and after he completed what we would call high school, he was recommended for the University of Erfurt. Luther received his bachelor's degree after about a year of study at the University of Erfurt. And then after about another two and a half, almost three years, he gets his master's degree. And now the master's degree was kind of a general purpose degree. It wasn't in a particular subject yet. But it enabled somebody who wanted to go on in higher education to move on to one of the higher faculties, which were only three in those days, medicine, law, or theology. But something is going on in Luther's life. While he's studying at the University of Erfurt, he noticed a great bound copy of an old book in the library, and it turned out to be the Holy Bible in the Vulgate Latin translation. Uh, he had heard readings from the Bible before, but never realized they all even came from the same book, because in those days, the Bible was regarded as a very dark and obscure document, which only the clergy could properly interpret. Now remember, Luther's born right at the advent of the printing press's discovery, but it was still in its infancy, and books were still rare. If you had a book, it meant somebody had to hand copy that book. And so Bibles, they're very expensive because you had to copy every single line of every single Bible by hand. But in Luther's time growing up, there were, there were Bibles that were very rarely found. 
Luther was very much aware, as were all Christians at the time, that the church said, now you need our help in order to be able to understand this. You need guidance, expert guidance, to interpret this very mysterious book. But there were other events in Luther's life that focused his attention on the hereafter. In 1503, he was paying a visit to his parents, leaving Erfurt and going back to where they were, and he sustained a, an injury from a sword that pierced an artery going into his leg. Uh, and bled profusely, uh, which uh, was a very frightening occurrence for him. Uh, it reinforced a fear of death. Uh, I say reinforced because fear of death was very, very widespread at that time. You have to remember that death could come very suddenly. You could get sick in the morning and be dead by evening from some sort of bug. Uh, plagues regularly went through cities. Uh, women died in childbirth. Uh, death was much more a part of the daily consciousness in that time than it is now. And so when Luther accidentally stabbed himself, it was simply reinforcing a fear of death that was already there. Luther did recover, but there were other occasions in which a friend of his named Alexis, for example, died, and Luther again wondered, what if I were Alexis? Uh, two of his colleagues in Erfurt died of the plague at the time. And so here this young student was looking way ahead into the future and the life to come early on in life. On July 2nd, 1505, Luther's coming back from visiting his parents, back on his way to Erfurt. He's only been in law school for, oh, about six weeks or so. Not very long by the time he took his leave of absence. And there's a thunderstorm that comes up. He is frightened for his life standing out there and the lightning and the thunder. He cries out, Saint Anne, help me, I will become a monk. And as somebody once said, well, she did. And he did. And it was goodbye to law school. About two weeks after that great experience at the thunderstorm, Luther basically dispossesses himself of all of his possessions, including a very expensive law book that his dad had gotten him as a graduation present for his master's degree graduation, and goes into the toughest monastery he can find there in Erfurt, that of the observant Augustinians. He entered an Augustinian monastery uh, and uh, did indeed uh, take a vow, which he later admitted was uh, made under duress and uh, was not sincere, but it was a vow that he took and he felt he needed to complete. In the late medieval people were very concerned with their destination after death, and Martin Luther shared that concern. And so his decision to enter a monastery was motivated, at least in part, by this concern for what would happen to him after he died. And he believed, as was common at that time, and as the church encouraged, that going to a monastery, becoming a monk, would give him a better chance, a better chance of a happy result after he died. You know, obsessed by guilt and the fear of damnation, Luther was trying in vain to find assurance of his salvation. I love what he said. He said, I was a pious monk. You know, if ever there was a monk that got into heaven over monkery, I would have gotten there. So as Luther was entering into manhood, he was, he was literally running away from the world, 
um, hiding in the monasteries, trying to find peace with God. But the book, the book that he found in the University of Erfurt, at first it would torment him, but later it would bring him to the realization that would change the world. But once he got into Rome, and he was doing the various things that a religious pilgrim would do in Rome, he got less and less enchanted with the city of Rome. In fact, later on he said, boy, if, if there's a hell, Rome is built on it. He did have a way with words. He did, indeed. Where's two? That's next week. That's next week. Next week. Next week. On a man called Martin. All right, thoughts, comments, observations. What struck you about that? I mean, how much of that did you know? Let me ask you that. None. None. Okay. <laughs> thing that struck me is they were concerned about the sins that they had committed, yeah. but were born in original sin, and they really didn't know Yeah, and I, well, I, I don't know that I'm qualified to, to say what, what the theology of that was at the time and kind of what was being said about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly, you got original sin that we're all stuck with, Baptism, like you say, kind of addresses that. Um, but then, you know, you, you've got this kind of ongoing fear about what, what about the sins that I've committed since and how do I deal with that and, and what comes of it. And so, and the Catholic Church, the way, they, the way they approached this had to do with God's grace, but also what you do. And it was, a, it was a both and, you know, God's grace is there. It's going to cover what you're unable to do, but you've got to do some stuff too. And so your works are a part of what happened, what brings you to salvation. But God's grace is always the thing that brings you across the finish line, basically. One of the, so, yeah. One of the things that's hard to relate to yeah. is we've never lived under a theocracy. A theocracy? theocracy. Right. Which is a different world. Kind of like Very much so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Pope had phenomenal power in those days. Yeah. It was, you know, the emperor was crowned by the Pope. I mean, it was the Pope who basically selected the emperor. You know, and all that there was, it was, and there was no separation of church and state, for sure. Now, what's interesting is, and, and I, I think this is going to come out in the course of this, that concept of separation of church and state, in large part, was articulated by Martin Luther. That's where that came from, because he talks about the left and the right-hand kingdoms. And he talks about government as the left-hand kingdom through which God provides for order in our life here. And then the church is the right-hand kingdom that, that deals with spiritual issues and bringing us to eternal life. And so it's Martin Luther who really kind of articulates this idea of a separation of church and state, even as he preserves the notion that God is in control of all of it. You know? Yeah, what else stood out to you? What what didn't you know that was a surprise, Robert? Man set up um, Latin to yeah. separate the people from uh, the upper level people from right. the church. Right. From the masses. Set up this barrier, in other words, yeah. that is was difficult to understand unless you were really educated. Right. 
because the Bible didn't exist and um, and people didn't have access to it right. until the um, the printing press. Right. Yeah. So I, I'm not necessarily created as that, but it certainly served in that way that that it became. You know, the, the, the comment that was made was, you know, you need some expert help to understand right. this. And some of that was just practical that most people didn't know Latin. You know, so, so you had to have someone who was educated to be able to translate the Latin at the very least. It's why it, it was a big deal when Martin Luther, while he was holed up at the Wartburg Castle, translated the Bible into German. And all of a sudden, it became, it beca well, a God's design, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? The Latin, that is, to keep people... Oh, yeah. Well, Latin was the language of the, of the educated, of the, of, you know, the upper levels. Yeah. And the idea of not having a whole Bible in the church. Yeah, they were. You don't even have a Bible. Now, that plays out later, because Luther, you know, as, as we're going through this kind of, this breakaway, which is not what Luther intended, but it's happening, Luther and, and his... You know, his buddies are going around to churches and they're they're checking to see what are the pastors teaching and what do they know and they're shocked at what they find. I mean, these pastors, even the pastors don't have the basics of Christianity. They don't understand it. Partly because they haven't had access to that kind of stuff. You know, and they didn't have seminaries set up the way we do now and that kind of thing to make sure that they were trained well. Um, so yeah, I mean that was that was one of the things that they were like, oh my gosh, even the pastors don't get it. Um, and so there was a lot of work put into that. The small catechism we talked about last week was about teaching the people the basics of the Christian faith, and the large catechism was predominantly about teaching pastors the basics of the faith um, at, a, at a deeper level. So right. Jerome translated the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Latin because that was the language of educators and and the people who had really been trained. Right. Professors and And, and it became the language of the lingua franca of the church. Yeah. yeah. And then the people who became the pastors, the local pastors, they didn't have that same education. Yeah. So they didn't they couldn't know what the, all of the Latin right. was. Right, so they're just parroting out the things that they've read. Yeah. Did Luther go to the monastery to become a pastor? Is that was his No, reason? Luther went to become a monk. Now, yeah, there's well, a distinction there. So a monk is someone who has made, has made vows that they will lead a life oh. devoted to study of the word and, and worship and praise of God. Um, that can, for many of them, lead to ordination which then oh, okay. means becoming a priest, um, which certainly did happen with Luther, but then his, his path took him more toward education. So he became, you know, when the university was set up in Wittenberg, um, he became the, the biblical scholar there, basically, and it, it led him into a place where he was training others. Um, so he, he certainly was a pastor. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But more of his life, I think, was spent training others and raising them up to be pastors, too. He did both. Well, most of the abbeys with the monks had their own little communities, mm -hmm. and they they just, um, they would make sure that they had everything that they needed so that they didn't rely on the outside world. Right, they would have right, pretty insular. And their animals and mm -hmm. um, different things like that, and they would have their own community and just very little rely on the outside world for right. anything. So right. it was more of a, 
I'm going to go and become a monk so that all I, all I worry about is what this Abbey needs in my relationship with God. Right. right. And, and later in his life, Luther just slams it. He's very critical of the idea that by becoming a monk, you could somehow earn God's favor, which is essentially how it was presented. All right. Yeah, Robert. Um, I don't know this, but maybe you do. Um, I'll make it up if I know. <laughs> um, Luther, uh, that revelation that gave Luther that, um, that the Bible was only in Latin, and the, he and his group, write one in and say German German uh, language. Luther himself and, translated the, the Vulgate, the, the Latin, into German in the span of about, he did the New Testament in about 100 days, really? which was yeah. astonishing. Yeah. He must have not slept. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so he, he was holed up at Wartburg Castle, and we can talk about that later. But yeah. So I'm, I'm assuming he did the... Uh, Ultimately, the earlier, did, earlier chapters of the Bible. Ultimately, too. did the Old Testament as well, well. Yeah. and then combined them, and that must have been powerful because oh. it started reaching every yes. city in Europe. So, so the astonishing thing about Luther's translation of the Bible into German is that um, that became the primary tool for teaching reading and German to German students for the next 300 years. So it would be impossible to overestimate Luther's influence in just the German language. Because what happened was, I mean, Germany was not a country at that time. It was a whole bunch of, of dukedoms. And, and so what happens is when Luther publishes this Bible in German, it becomes standard German. So the way he approaches the translation, the way he deals with German idioms and, and language and that, becomes standard German, which is why his Bible is the tool that's used to teach German then for 300 years after that. So the German language today is what it is because of Martin Luther. There's no, I mean, there's no question about that. Um, and that's, you know, there's one of the things as you look at the Reformation, we kind of think of the Reformation as this thing that had to do with the church, but no, it had to do with almost every aspect of our lives. And, and it's astonishing where you bump into things that have been influenced by Martin Luther and by the reformers, even today, things that you would never realize had any relationship to that. Schools are a great example of that. So the educational system was influenced by it. He democratized the Bible? In a lot of ways, yes. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple of questions. We'll, we'll kind of jump into some of these. Um, like all of us, Martin Luther was molded by the world into which he was born. As he grew, he found strict discipline and fear wherever he turned, at home, at school, and in church. Paul, uh, Dr. Paul Meyer, by the way, Paul Meyer, is, he's one of the coolest people in the world, if you don't yeah. know who he is. Um, Dr. Meyer, is he's kind of the Indiana Jones of the LCMS. I think that's probably a good way to put it. Um, just an amazing man. He's brilliant. He's written all kinds of amazing stuff. And he's also a fabulous um, fiction writer. Um, he's written some terrific historical fiction books, one of the best of which is called Pilot. That's about Pontius Pilate, and it will, it's amazing. Anyway, Paul Meyer noted, in one morning, Luther was caned or disciplined somehow 15 times for not having prepared his Latin lesson correctly. And Dr. Bierman recalled an incident when Luther's parents disciplined him for stealing a nut. Luther said the blood flowed from the punishment that he got. So what was the world that you grew up in? Was it harsh, like Luther's world? What was your world like? 
Not, not that harsh. Not that hard. <laughs> yeah, I was never cane. Ever. <laughs> Were you belted? <laughs> um, nope, but there was a panel. I remember Mr. Mack, my high school principal, had a paddle <laughs> called the Enforcer. <laughs> we a hickory stick. Yeah, which would never happen today, right? Yeah, you get sued. Yeah, so it's a little different, corporal punishment. What was discipline like in your homeschool and church, if you want to share? I mean, you know, that may be something you don't want to talk about. Parents <coughs> were... A little more disconnected. Say that again. What was? Parents. Parents. Okay. Disconnected. Okay. Uh, not quite into the same type of instruction. Instruction was more severe. Responsibility was emphasized. Self, okay. uh, self learning to be self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. um, but they weren't quite, at least in my instance, they weren't quite the nurturing or problem solving mm -hmm. um, as far as assisting you to move forward, that was up to you. Yeah. Um, so how they taught self-sufficiently was by making you be self-sufficient. Uh -huh. Right? Right. You had to get your own way to where if you needed to go somewhere, you had to figure out your own way to get there. Yeah. You had to figure out your uh, own goals, you but work was absolutely emphasized. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. Jean, mine was totally different. I yeah. was an only child of older parents, and uh, the path was always smooth for me. Nice. And, and yeah, you talk about disconnected. My mom was never disconnected because she taught in the high school where I went. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She was never disconnected. She knew everything that was going on. Yeah, but they really anticipated that you would get educated so you could do well. Yeah, okay. Yes. And so, I mean, and if you didn't, you didn't do well. So in, in your childhood, and probably most of ours, helicopter parents weren't a thing. No. Right? Yeah. It is more so now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and your neighbors would disappoint you, too. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty nice to the teacher. You didn't get a good grade. So how did your experiences mold you into the person you are today? I mean, we kind of are talking about that already, but, you know, what are some of the ways that... was completely different. Your parenting style was? Okay. Along with nurturing, we helped guide the children, and we were... The emphasis was on church and learning mm -hmm. and uh, spiritual gifts. Uh, it was also in um, outreach and mission work and seeing the world, di how different the world can be than your own reality. Mm -hmm. And um, mission work was uh, emphasized okay. in that from junior high on. Cool. Yeah. And yeah. they're still connected to the outside instead okay. of the self. Interesting. Any other thoughts on just kind of how your experiences well, formed you? I, I don't know that I'm any different from any of the, the people I grew up with. It was my, my parents were, my responsibility is to teach you how to be self-reliant. And when you're 18 years old, what you do from there is your deal. Wow. Don't expect us to 
to give you anything because what we've worked for, yeah, we've worked hard for. Yeah. So it was, if you want to go to college, then you're going to figure out how to wow. do that. Wow. Okay. That's it. Wow. I mean, and for me, college was never really a thought until I, I had a short stint in between junior and senior year, but it was like, if that was something for me, that was it. I mean, my parents grew up, my mom grew up on a farm, and my dad grew up in a town, 200 people doing farming stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, you you work to live. You got a job to make money, yeah, have food right. on the table, right. clothes, right. and a house. Right. And that was that was it. That's, that's what life was going to be. Yeah. You trained your kids how to do that, and then you did it. Yeah, so it was very practical. Church was on sure. Sunday. Yeah. You went to church on Sunday, and well, and that was it. Because with four of us kids, they didn't have time to be running around yeah. taking everybody to, to do anything. Right. But right. the the church the church in our family was di disassociated from daily living. Interesting. Okay. It was no because they were they weren't Christian. Oh, I got it. Okay. No, okay. No. So that yeah. was my background, but work. Work yeah. will get you where you want to go. Ah, interesting. Now, okay. so yeah. Now, so, so there's know. a there's a works righteousness message, right? Absolutely, it worked. Yeah, it okay. worked. So, how did you come to faith? You came to faith later. I know Sunday school. Really? Uh, yeah, my dad uh, uh, had two businesses going and a gas station, and we worked in the gas station doing the books and, and run home from school, and so he could have lunch and run back to school and, yeah. and no money. But uh, in turn, he said, if you go to church, you don't have to work on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> now, he was the greatest mission person ever. <laughs> All of us kids, to this day, there's only one of my brothers left. All of us were churchgoers really? whole life long. <laughs> Escapism, and it turned into something good. Yeah. <laughs> God's hand in Awesome. No, he would rent us out during the summer to work on the farm. At eight, wow. Make the money. Okay. Uh, I would babysit. I would cook on a gas stove. Um, younger than that, I stood on a schedule. <coughs> but an actual paint job started at eight. Wow. Babysitting in the neighborhood for family and whatnot. And they're responsible to, sure. to like I said, cook. Yeah. And clean and mm -hmm. take care of the children solely alone. I got my first work permit. I, I went and got a work permit and had a job at 14. Wow. And I never stopped working. I had I had six months off of work when I first married and moved to Arkansas. And it was simply a transportation issue. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> so, so here's a challenging question. How did your experiences with your earthly father color your view of God the Father. And you know, we had that, there was a comment in there about Luther and the fact that his father was harsh mm -hmm. and therefore that's how he viewed God the Father. Mm -hmm. Anybody want to share about that? I mean, that, that can be touchy. I get that. We weren't sure. So there was confusion and fear and guilt and uh, my parents had been churched. But they dropped out of church when I was five. Okay. So I wasn't instructed in the church. Um, there was also, even at one point, a, a confusion of the divinity. 
of Jesus Christ. Okay. So I'm a late Christian. My belief, my faith didn't come about until I was 30 when we had a neighbor who moved in and guided us to their, or invited us to their Lutheran church. Cool. Because um, we had really not gone. I mean, we tried the Catholic church, but it was, you went to Mass, you got your cookie, and you went home. You know, <laughs> that's basically all it was. Right. So uh, that didn't work. And uh, so when we went there, when the children started school, so I was in my 30s before I began to learn anything. So that's why I'm did, such a voracious reader now. Yeah, so did, I mean, did your relationship with your own dad color how you understood who God the Father is? And, and, and I think what, this, is a, this is a particularly challenging question, I think, for somebody maybe who had a not good father, right? A father who was abusive or, or you know, was, was negligent or, you know, whatever it is, that one of the things that you can sometimes carry, if, you, if that's the experience that you had with your earthly father, then it can color who you understand God the Father to be. Um, and, I, and I think one of the blessings that we have in faith is for those people who are able to overcome that and see that God the Father is the relationship that we should aspire to, but because of sin, earthly fathers, for various reasons, fall short of that. And for those of us who had really good earthly fathers, then that can also color how we understand who God the Father is. The church was more rigid in, in, in my childhood, okay. in the 60s. And so that's your perception of God the Father, is, is rigid, rigid and harsh. Yeah. What were you going to say, Gene? Our church uh, had a parochial school, so okay. I went all the way through, so everything in our life was based yeah. around, you know, I went to school, but it was sure. church school. Right. And... Uh, my folks were, my father was a hardworking man, worked a lot of hours, and mother was one of those that you don't wait to father get it home to get punished. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> then the question should be, how did your relationship with your mom go? <laughs> there was a loving, loving atmosphere, right. but you knew that you crossed the line. Right. You didn't have to wait for the punishment. It right. was there. And when the punishment was over, it was ev everything was right in the world. Interesting. I, you know, if I did something bad, we even had a uh, Chinese elm tree out front. And the worst thing you could do is you had to go pick out the switch. Oh, <laughs> wow. So you come back in, you get to, your, you got your punishment, and then I could go get a cup of cookie or something because I had my punishment, I've learned my lesson, right, right. and that was it. Right. And so it was made always, satisfaction. You know, I think, I think my dad only punished me once my whole life, okay. you know, and that okay. was one of those, oh, wow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You knew it was serious then, right? Well, I already had the punishment for mother, so it was, oh, I was wow. getting a, a double dip wow. kind of thing. Justin. So, kind of a different viewpoint is that my mother was kind of forced into religion early on in her life, and she rebelled alongside with her two sisters. Um, they were more of the... 80s kind of rock bandish type okay. of rebellion mm -hmm. stage. And my father wasn't brought into religion early on in his life. And he learned it uh, in his late teens and fell in love with it. He was cool. very involved in every single service, every single event that went on. So when they met 
and they finally fell in love and they had kids, they both kind of agreed on the fact of to not push religion on kids. Um, but it kind of fell into a way of not even speaking about it. It wasn't that it was a negative subject, it's just it was never brought up and it only ever happened when we had family members who invited us to church. Okay. So I grew up not really knowing about religion, not mm -hmm. knowing really anything about it. Um, so it kind of painted the view of is God revealing mm -hmm. more so than what and who God is. Interesting. Okay. So coming from a standpoint of knowing nothing and not being taught about any of it, it came from the dare I say more agnostic slash atheistic uh -huh. view uh -huh. of oh you're a kid you're growing up. You don't really know anything about it, so you're going to kind of rebel to a stage mm -hmm. to not push yourself to learn. And everywhere I went didn't really give me any guidance. Uh, always went to, dare I say, megachurches mm -hmm. from where we were. So not understanding anything that was going on there and not having anybody around to really uh, guide you kind of puts a stop. Yeah. And all of that. Yeah. So. So how did you overcome that? <laughs> Thank you, Amber. <laughs> and yours is not the only story like that, though. I mean, how, I'm, I'm curious if you want to share. How many of you married into your faith? Because I, I think, yeah, see? Yeah. Yeah. Married into yeah. Catholic Church. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying when I ask that. I mean, interesting. Very cool. Doesn't God work in some interesting ways? I have a booklet. When I was on mission, that's one of the things I did was, uh, uh, was to ask them, how did you come to faith? Yeah. Write it down, please. Yeah. And give me a copy if you want to. Okay. And I have a whole bunch. Interesting. And, and, you know, Fascinating stories, aren't they? Very, very, very revealing how many people married yeah. into the yeah. church. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> God in works fact, in really cool ways. My mother wouldn't let me marry them unless he came to church <laughs> you know good maybe yeah sometimes it's in-laws not not spouses <laughs> all right there's lots i mean this is it's all fascinating discussion and, and what's interesting is understanding kind of where luther came from gives you a little bit of insight into into why the things that were important to him were right mm -hmm. Um, and I, I'll leave the rest of this as you know an exercise for the reader. You guys can look through it because we're running out of time. Yeah. Um, I'd sure like to know if Luther had brothers and sisters. Luther had brothers and sisters. He was the second. I'm not sure how many there were total. Um, but you know, he he was in some sense. I mean, he was the one that his father kind of pinned his hopes on because he wanted him to be an attorney, yeah. so that it would help his business thrive. Right? It was it was part of the family business, and we got to have a Germany is usually the oldest. The first yeah, born. Yeah. First, um, in Catholic, why firstborn? Yeah, firstborn. Yep. Um, so we'll we'll get into session two next time. You've got some more stuff here. If you have questions on it, we'll take those up next time we get together. Is it helpful? Interesting yeah, stuff. Yeah, very good. Interesting. Good. Yes. good. Okay. All right. Let's uh, close with the prayer then. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for all of the amazing ways that you work in our lives. Um, we're reminded time and again that you're not a watchmaker who made this world and then walked away from it after winding it up. You're actively involved. You are with us. You are caring for us. You are um, providing for us. You are protecting us. And it's just incredible to see the ways you do that. 
We thank you for Martin Luther and for the stories that we're learning about what his life was like and how you used him as an instrument to bring people back to you, back to your son, Jesus Christ, and back to the salvation that you have for them. Um, so be with us today as we go forth from here. Guide and lead us in everything that we do, that it might be pleasing to you and bring glory to your name. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week.